and in Egypt and serve the Lord. But if serving the Lord seems undesirable to you, then choose for yourselves this day whom you will serve, whether the gods your ancestors served beyond the Euphrates or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you are living. But as for me and my household, we will serve the Lord. Then the people answered, Far be it from us to forsake the Lord to save other gods. It was the Lord our God himself who brought us and our parents out of Egypt from that land of slavery and performed those great signs before our eyes. He protected us in our entire, on our entire journey and among all the nations through which we traveled. And the Lord drove out before us all the nations, including the Amorites, who lived in the land. We too will serve the Lord because he is our God. This is God's word. You may be seated. Father, we come before you asking you to bless us in this study and asking you, Father, to, to deepen our understanding and to widen our, our vision of the kind of people that you have called us to be. We're thankful for this, this book of the Old Testament that is called Joshua and for all of the ways that it has touched our, our minds and our hearts these last few months in our study. And as we bring it to a close this morning, Father, we pray that these words out of chapter 23 and 24 will stick to our souls and and form the, the pathway in which we will deepen our commitment and deepen our levels of discipleship as we endeavor to become like Jesus in all that we do. And we pray, Father, that these words be rich for us. And that these words be beautiful for us all the days of our life. And we pray, Father, that you bless us in this way. In the name of Jesus, amen. Might be an old Civil War buff. Might not. Doesn't really matter. I think everybody recognizes the name of of General William Tecumseh Sherman. There is a a story that is told about him. I don't know if it's true or not, but I'm going to tell you because it's a great story. It's a story about uh, a time when he was, uh, he was marching through the south. He had already burned Atlanta, and he was, he was heading to the south. Grant had sent him there to try to force the south to its knees and, and to bring the Civil War to an end. And he had just taken a town. The army was moving to the next place of engagement, and as they're going through the town, they pass a house in which there is uh, a, an old lady out on the front porch with a broom, and she's out there sweeping. And as Sherman and his entourage pass this house, this woman comes down off of the porch, approaches Sherman on his horse, and begins to beat him with that broom handle. Well, you can imagine what happened. All of the soldiers and all of his entourage, they get between this this woman and between General Sherman to protect him, and he kind of gathers himself together. He's kind of startled by this woman attacking him with a broom handle. That doesn't happen every day. And he looks down at her and he says, Woman, you are a defeated enemy. Why in the world are you hitting me with that broom handle? And she looked him right in the eye and she said, I want you to know, General, whose side I'm on. Now, I think that that's exactly what Joshua does in chapter 23 and 24 is declare whose side he's on. One of the things that we need to keep in mind this morning is the importance of the choices that we make, the the importance of decisions. In fact, up here on the screen is a line 
sentence I want you to write down. You never underestimate the power of a decision. Never underestimate the power of a decision that you make in life. In my own personal experience, this has been true again and again and again and again. In 1979, I traveled from the East Coast to Abilene, Texas, to West Texas, to Abilene Christian University. I had never been on the campus. I didn't even know where Abilene was, but I wanted to come back to Texas, and I wanted to study theology. I wanted to be a minister. And so I go to that campus, having never been there. I didn't even know a single soul who had ever attended that campus. But here I am on the campus in 1979. It changed my life. During my freshman year, I began to, to date this, this beautiful young woman by the name of Ellen. And in uh, a few years, that relationship got to the place uh, between our junior and our senior year of college where we decided to get married. We got married, and it changed my life. And not too long after that, after we had gotten out of school, out of graduate school and all of that, another decision, the decision to have kiddos. And we had a beautiful baby girl by the name of Jessica. Later on, a little beautiful boy by the name of Jordan changed my life. Not long after that, we decided to go to Brazil as missionaries and spent six years, a number of years, living in Brazil with some of the most wonderful people you would ever know on this planet. And... and preaching to them and living with them and working with them and eating with them and sharing our lives with them and fellowshipping with them and celebrating them as they celebrated us. It changed my life. And 12 years ago, in January of 2001, I get a phone call from Norris Elam. And Norris says, we'd like for you to, to think about maybe uh, preaching for us here at MacArthur Park. And in July of that year, Ellen and I made a really important decision. We decided to accept the invitation to preach here at MacArthur Park and it changed our life. How wonderful it is to be in, in fellowship with this group of people. One of, the, one of the blessings that I have every week is to open up the Word of God and to talk about God's Word to people that I'm in relationship with. Decisions. Choices. The, the, the life that we live, the life that we live in many respects is determined by the decisions that we make. And here's the thing. You can't help but choose. Even if you don't choose, even if you decide that my position on this is neutrality, that by, by default is a decision. Now, one of the things that the Bible talks about over and over and over again, especially in the New Testament, is the power of these choices. And that you have to choose. That you don't have a choice in not choosing. You have to choose. Jesus says in Matthew chapter 7, there are two ways. There is a wide gate that leads to destruction. There is a narrow gate that leads to life. Choose, but you've got to choose. And then he says over in chapter 8, he says, you know, there is a Father in heaven who is God, and there is a Father of lies who is Satan, and you have to decide which one of those fathers you claim. But you can't sit in the middle. You can't be neutral on it. You have to choose. Paul will do the same thing. In Colossians chapter 1, he says there is a kingdom of light and there is a kingdom of darkness. Now, which one are you going to belong to? You have to choose. Over in Romans chapter 1, he says people have been making choices from the beginning of time. They can look at creation and choose to see God as revealed in creation or they can exchange that truth for a lie. But they have to choose. Now, here we are in, in, uh, in the book of Joshua. Chapters 23 and 24, we're at the end of this book. The Lord has given rest to Israel from her enemies. They are no longer fighting the way that they have been. Joshua is a really old man now. And being an old man, knowing that he is at the end of his days, he knows that he's about to die soon, 
He does something that Moses, his, his, uh, his uh, predecessor, does. In the book of Deuteronomy, Moses knows that he's not going to go into the promised land. It's been told to him by God that he's not going to do it. So he calls all of the people to him, the B'nai Israel, the sons of Israel, and he gives them three sermons. Joshua's going to do the same thing. He knows he's not going to last much longer. And he wants to make sure that he recounts all of the things that God has done to bring the people to that day, to that place, to that moment where there is rest where there is now a sense of peace and a sense of occupation of this land that they had been promised for years and years and years and years. And, and this is what he does. And for two chapters, he recounts all of these fantastic things that God has done. And at the end of that, he says, you have to again this day choose. You have to decide. You have to make a choice of the direction that your life is going to take. And so he says in chapter 24, beginning with verse 14, he says, Now fear the Lord and serve Him with all faithfulness. Throw away the gods your ancestors worshipped beyond the Euphrates River and in Egypt and serve the Lord. But if serving the Lord seems undesirable to you, then choose for yourselves this day whom you will serve, whether the gods your ancestors served beyond the Euphrates or the god of the Amorites in whose land you are living. But as for me and my household, say it with me, we will serve the Lord. This morning we had a very special thing happen. As we saw all of these families with all of these babies less than a year old stand before our church family, our community of faith. And another generation, a new generation of kiddos has been brought into our church family. And as we think about the responsibility that we all share in making sure that generation to generation to generation the Word of God is taught and lived out and modeled and demonstrated before all of these kids, it's kind of incumbent on us to do the same kind of thing that Israel did before Joshua at the end of the book of Joshua, Joshua chapter 24, and that is to make a commitment to serve God with all of our heart. But here's the question. How do you make a commitment? How do you make a commitment? Well, I think Joshua shows us three things in this passage that helps us to understand how we make these decisions and how we make these commitments. The first is this. You've got to make this decision individually. You have to make this decision individually. No one can choose God for you. No one. No one can choose God for you. That's why Joshua stands in front of the people there at Shechem and he says, today you have to choose for yourself. It is a personal responsibility. And the reason for it is this. You must choose personally because you're going to be judged individually. You have to choose personally because you will be judged individually. A couple of verses from Paul's hand, 2 Corinthians chapter 5. We must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. Every single person here will appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each of us may receive what is due us for the things done while in the body, whether good or bad. Over in Romans chapter 14, he says, each of us will give an account of ourselves to God. Now Joshua is a stellar example of a guy that has made a commitment by making an individual decision that come whatever might come in life, or whatever circumstances he might find himself sandwiched in, or whatever the pressure might be by his peers or his nation to do otherwise, he is committed to God. 
What happens in Exodus as Moses is going up and down that Mount Sinai and he's receiving finally on that one trip the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments, and he comes down. Who does he meet halfway down? Joshua. Now why is Joshua there? It's because Joshua will not have anything to do that's happening in the camp of Israel at that point. And Moses says, Joshua, what in the world is going on here? He says, well, I, you know, and before Joshua can even explain what's going on, Moses asks him, what is all of that noise that I hear down there in the camp? And Joshua has to tell him, well, it's not good down there. They have decided that this little golden calf, and you know, I always grew up with the idea that these golden calves were this life size. They were not. All of the golden calves, all of the calves that were idols that have been uncovered in the Mediterranean world are about the size of a shoebox. And Israel, he says, has decided that this fantastic God that is so big that you can't even see Him, that brought all of these plagues down upon the, the mightiest nation in the entire world to bring them out. They have decided that they are rejecting Him so that they can worship this little shoebox-sized golden calf. What kind of guts did it take to go up that mountain and to get away from that? And then you know the story in Numbers chapter 13 and 14. There are these 12 spies at Kadesh Barnea that go from the southern end of the promised land all the way to the north and they come back. And at the end of the 40 days that they're in the land, Moses wants to know, well, how'd you find it? And 10 of those 12 say, you know what? God can't do this thing. It's better for us to go back to Egypt. It's better for us to go back and at least be fed. These people are going to eat us. We're like grasshoppers in our own eyes compared to these people. Now, the land does flow with milk and honey. It is a truth. God has not lied to us about that. But we don't think that God can get us into this land. And Joshua and Caleb stand up before the entire country and before these ten guys that they had just spent 40 days scouting out the land and they say, don't listen to them. Listen to us. We can take this land. We can do it. God is with us. We can do it. And he stands along with Caleb and along with Moses and, and a few others, they stand alone against the outcry against God and against them. That's the kind of commitment that he has for God. That's the kind of commitment that, that he has uh, up there on the, the side of Mount Sinai. That's what he has in Kadesh Barnea. Now the ironic truth is, they're not the only ones that will face this kind of thing. In the next couple of days, in the next couple of days, every person in this auditorium is going to face a decision for or against God. And like it was for Joshua, and like it was for Caleb, and like it was for Moses, the church cannot make this decision for you. You have to make it individually for or against God. The youth group cannot make this decision for you. You have to make the decision for or against God. The elders can't make the decision for you. I'd love to have the elders make the decision. Take that responsibility away from me. But that's not the way that it works. You have to make the decision. That's why in Luke chapter 14, Jesus Himself says, if you want to be My disciple, you have to pick up that cross and you have to carry it and you have to follow Me. If you don't do that, you can't be My disciple. Over in Luke chapter 9, He says, you've got to do it every day. You have to make the decision individually. And then number two, you have to make the decision deliberately. In other words, you do not drift into discipleship. It doesn't happen automatically. Now, as my kids have grown up, I've always told them that when you make a decision, you have to know what is at 
at, at the cost level of that decision. We think that, you know, I, I want to be a rock star. I want to be a millionaire. Any kind of really weird decision that we decide we want to be like, you know, we, we, there's an, another decision behind it. There's always that decision. What is it that you want to do with your life? The second decision, which nobody ever really talks about, is this. Are you willing to pay the price to do or to become or to have what it is you've decided on? Now, that's why you have to make that decision deliberately. In Joshua chapter 24 and verse 14, Joshua says, Now fear the Lord and serve Him with all faithfulness. But that's not the only thing he tells them to do. He says, you've got to be deliberate in this. It's not just saying, hey, guess what? We're going to serve God. He says, throw away the gods your ancestors worshipped. Be deliberate in this decision to serve God with all faithfulness. Throw away the gods your ancestors worshipped beyond the Euphrates River and in Egypt. And again, he says, serve the Lord. Now drop down to Joshua chapter 24 and verse 23. Basically, he says the same thing. But notice the present tense. He says, now then, after they have reiterated the fact that they want to serve God, he says, now then, throw away the foreign gods that are what? That are among you and yield your hearts to the Lord, the God of Israel. What he's telling them is when you make a commitment to God, it means getting rid of all of the other claimants on the loyalty and the dedication of your heart. Now, I'm going to say something right now that seems so silly and so simple that it's nearly insulting to say it. But here it is. On the day that I asked Ellen to marry me, I was also saying that I do not want to marry anybody else. But that's what happened. I was in Wilhare Park on that Saturday night there in Abilene initiating in my life that I've had over the last 31 years Ellen consciousness in my life. When I said I want to marry you, Ellen, and if you want to marry I'm not going to marry anybody else. Time Magazine, uh, early part of this year, you may have read the article uh, there's a, a phenomenon that's going on. It's, it started in Tokyo, and it, I, I think it's kind of catching on around the, the country. The, the relationships between husbands and wives in, in Japan are a little stay. They're, they're kind of trussed up, very, very formal. And uh, in, in fact, when you talk with Ken and Etsuko, our missionaries in Japan, they'll talk about kind of this rising uh, level of, of divorce that's happening in the marriages and in the families there in Japan. And so to, to get this stemmed and going in a different direction... There's a fellow by the name of Kiyotaka Yamana who is initiating what he calls wife consciousness. And what, the way this thing started out is he, there were a couple of guys that said that they would do it, Japanese businessmen, you know, suit, very, very formal individuals, no emotion. And they would go to this big park in Tokyo with their wives. They stand in front of their wives and they would, they would say something to their wife that was something that they normally would not say that's supposed to be sweet. There's uh, this, this one fellow, and they're writing all, all these things these guys are saying to their wives, is one guy holds his, his baby daughter up in the air, and he yells out, he kind of screams to his wife, Thank you! There's uh, an, another guy, and this is completely, you know, un-Japanese. He looks at his wife, and he yells out in front of everybody, Let's hug tonight! And there's this other guy 
that, that stands in front of his wife and he kind of bows down in front of her and stands up and he says, I'm so sorry that I've gotten so fat, but all of your meals are so delicious. <laughs> Sadly, as you read the Old Testament, Israel was prone to lose God consciousness in her faith, faith life. They had seen the Jordan miraculously stopped up at that little town of Adam and they crossed over as, it, as, as if it was dry ground during the flood stage and it was about a mile wide. They have seen the walls of Jericho fall down. They've seen the camps of their enemies thrown in confusion. They have seen with their own eyes hailstones that were coming down and killing their enemy. On one day they saw by the power of God they heard the prayer of Joshua answered as the sun stayed still in, that, in, in the sky for one day. They had seen all of this. They had experienced all of these things. They weren't, you know, they weren't being told. They had experienced. It was firsthand primacy knowledge. But now Joshua is having to admonish them to get the idols that day out of their tents. After all that God had done for them, they still had idols. After, the, after being fed and protected and loved and guided and protected and all of these things, they still had idols in their tents. And that's why Jesus says, unless you take up your cross daily, unless you pick up your cross, that tailor-made cross for you, and follow me, you can't be my disciple. And unless we develop as disciples the daily practice of God consciousness, we will harbor these idols in our hearts. And the last word of Joshua is just about the same last word that the Apostle John had. In 1 John chapter 5, what is it that he says? Very last line of that book. He says, Dear children, keep yourselves away from idols. So you have to decide personally and individually, and you have to decide deliberately. Last thing, you have to make this decision public. Discipleship is a declaration of a conversion. Discipleship is a declaration of a conversion. Your heart is being converted to the heart that God wants you to have. And church, there is no room for neutrality. Each person has to choose. Jesus Himself said in Matthew chapter 12, He said, whoever is not for Me is against Me. You can't be neutral. I mean, think about one of the things that happens in baptism. It is an act of faith that is done publicly where you are declaring your faith, confessing before brothers and sisters that you believe that Jesus is the Messiah that He is the Son of God. And not only the Son of God, but He died. He was massacred. He was crushed for all of our iniquities so that we might not feel that, that wrath of God poured out on us. Now think about how gutsy that was in Acts chapter 2 on Pentecost. They hear this sermon and everybody is just cut to the heart and they believe what it is that Peter... They believe. They believe that they have crucified the Messiah, God's own Son. And they turn to Peter and they look him right in the eye and say, Brother, what must we do to be saved? And what is it that Peter says? Repent and be baptized in the name of Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins and you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. 3,000 people heard that and said, I will declare publicly my faith in Christ. And not only that, 
3,000 people publicly declared their faith in Jesus in the very city that just 50 days earlier had crucified and railroaded that Messiah that they now believe in. 50 days. Now, you, you know, 50 minutes after something happens, we forget about it in Western culture, especially in American culture right now. Not in that day. Don't, don't lose the importance of the fact that it was done on Pentecost. 50 days after Jesus was crucified. They still remembered. They still remembered what happened on that day. They know what crucifixion is all about. And in a city that had turned against the Messiah, they are saying, we're going for the Messiah. In a city that said, we don't want you talking about the Messiah, they say, we're going to believe in the Messiah and we're going to publicly confess the fact that He is Lord and Master and Savior of our lives. In that city. In that city. Hundreds of years earlier, in Shechem, Joshua would not leave any doubt as to where his allegiances and his commitments would lie. You know, I, I, I have this picture in my mind, you know, that he starts off slow. And he starts talking about all of the great things that God has done, all of the events that these people had seen with their own eyes. God's providence, His protection, His love, His compassion, His forgiveness when they, when they were wronged, or when they wronged Him. And, and he starts off slow, and he begins to build as he remembers, and he remembers, and he remembers. And it, it's like us. You know, when we remember something and we play that loop and it's a good loop in our mind, we get fired up and we're thinking, you know, God has, has done this for me. God took care of me. God, God blessed me. God protected me. I thought that I was going under, but He lifted me up. There was a rock that was cleft for me. And He put me in the cleft and He protected me. And He gets to the end of that sermon and He says, I don't care what any of you are going to do. If you decide that serving the God the, the one that brought us out of Egypt and brought us into this land is undesirable. Hey, then go back and serve the gods of the Egyptians. Go back and resurrect all of those Amorite gods and, and serve them. But as for me and my house, let it be known that we will serve God Almighty. And the people get fired up and they say, yes, yes. And I got to thinking about that. Why don't we do that? especially on a day like this. You know what the people said when they heard that? They said in verse 24, it's up here on the screen, we too, we will serve the Lord our God and obey Him. Why don't we do that? Why don't we declare publicly our faith like they did? I'd like for all of our shepherds and wives to stand and all of our ministry staff and wives to stand and all of our deacons and their wives to stand at this time. And I'm going to ask you to say with me the words of Joshua 24, verse 24. Say it with me. We will serve the Lord our God and obey Him. And all the church said, Amen. You may be seated. I'd like for all of our Bible teachers, the people that open up the Word of God from our smallest little preschoolers all the way up to, you know, I was going to say the auditorium class, but all the adult classes. I'd like for every Bible teacher that we have in our church to stand, please. And to say with me, Joshua 24 and verse 24, we will serve the Lord our God and obey Him. You may be seated. I'd like to have all our teenagers to stand. 
You know, you guys, every day are in a culture that is tough to live out the ramifications and implications of discipleship. But you have to choose. Say with me, Joshua 24 and verse 24, We will serve the Lord our God and obey Him. You may be seated. I'd like to get all the husbands and the wives and all of the parents, mothers, and fathers to stand. And we think about all of the, the things that we, we face in this culture. We think about the, the things that our kids are facing. We, we think about the responsibilities as moms and dads and as husbands and wives and how difficult that is. But we are called to be disciples of Jesus of Nazareth. That means to serve Him and to obey Him and to love Him and to demonstrate it. And not just verbally, but with our very lives. And so I'm going to ask you to say with me as well, Joshua 24 and verse 24, we will serve the Lord our God and obey Him. Let's have the entire church stand. We are a a community of disciples of Jesus. We have been commanded by Jesus Himself to be light and to be salt in this community, to do our good deeds in such a way that we don't get the thanks, but God gets the glory. We have been called to pray as children, praying to a father. We have been asked to be generous. We have been asked to turn the other cheek. We have been asked to be meek. We have been asked to be peacemakers. We have been asked to be witnesses of the gospel of Jesus of Nazareth. We have been asked to sanctify Jesus in our heart so that when people see our lives, that we will always have this answer prepared in our heart to give that ready answer to those that ask about that hope. Please say this with me. We will serve the Lord our God and obey Him. We're going to ask some of our shepherds to come down here to the front. If there's any way that our church can minister to you this morning through prayer, sharing with you the good news of Jesus and, uh, and, and showing you the importance of making that, that, that decision of repentance and confession and baptism and, and living your life as the disciple by picking up that cross on a daily basis. We're going to sing a song right now. We invite you to come down to the front to talk to these shepherds. Let's sing out and praise God. Would you be free from the burden of sin? There's power in the blood, power in the blood. Would you are evil?